A welcome to those of you who are worshiping at the Moundsview campus and at the South campus down in Burnsville. I pray that the Lord would draw you in now to pray and worship in the hearing of the Word of God. So, Father, here we are now gathered on these campuses to hear the Word of God. And I pray that you would come, that you'd come there in Burnsville and you would come there in Moundsview and you would come here downtown. And you would cause us to see the upside down counterintuitive joy of this strange man, John the Baptist, and make us like him. Make me like him. And his joy was now full as he decreased and Christ increased. Come and do that crazy joy in us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus is finished talking to Nicodemus. And the scene changes, and he is now in a Judean countryside, it says, baptizing with his band of men. Although, it says in verse 2 of chapter 4, Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. Presumably for a reason something like Paul's in Corinth, where he was very concerned that people would brag, I got the real deal. I got the real baptism from the main man. So I presume that's one of the reasons why he didn't do it himself. Verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. So part of the way Jesus was gathering a following is that his band would call for repentance and then would signify the purification from sins and the union with God in Christ by baptizing people just like John the Baptist did. Then verse 23 says, here comes John the Baptist again. We hadn't seen him for a chapter, and now he's back. John the Baptist, verse 23. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salem because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. So the situation is set for us. One band of men is baptizing in one place, and another band of men is baptizing in another place. And this evidently triggers a dispute, a discussion. Verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. So, something 
in the way this is happening has caused there to be a argument or a discussion about purification. That's all we're told. This debate or this discussion is never described. In fact, it just seems to vanish. Verse 26. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you, this is Jesus he's talking about, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. That's not, that's not what we expected him to say. I mean, the, the issue is purification. What's, what's the deal with purification? That's the debate set up in verse 25. And now, are you going to talk about this? And the answer seems to be no. Or, or is it? Here's my guess as to what the dispute or discussion was. Just because of the way he set it up in verse 22 and 23, one group baptizing, another group baptizing. Then you got a little debate here about purification. So what, what might it be? I mean, there's no description of the debate, so I'm just going to guess. All right, then you judge whether my guess seems plausible in the text. I think this Jewish man said to John's disciples, look, you're baptizing. Your, your group is baptizing and lots of people are coming and they're going down into that bath of purification, presumably, because you're coming out and you're saying their sins are forgiven because they've repented and gone through this purification bath. And, and now lots of these followers of yours are going over to him. And he's baptizing too. So what's up? Something wrong with your baptism? It's not working? His works. Yours doesn't work. You got a purification issue here. I think probably something like that. That's just my, my best shot as to what the issue was here. They're, because they're all leaving John and going over to Jesus and, and they're both baptizing and so maybe. That was the, the issue. We're not told. In fact, the issue never comes up again. The word never comes up again in the gospel. Or does it? We'll have to wait and see. What does come up in verse 27 to 30 is that John the Baptist uh, takes this conversation in a totally unexpected direction. And so we're going to follow him. Seems to have nothing to do with purification, but hmm. Has everything to do with Jesus. He's going to be the bridegroom. Has everything to do with John. He's the friend of the bridegroom. Has everything to do with what's happening. They're leaving him and going to the bridegroom. And it has everything to do with John's response to this. He's incredibly happy. So that's what this text is about. Who is Jesus, the bridegroom? Who's John, the friend? What's happening? Everybody's leaving John, going to Jesus. How does he feel about it? Thrilled. That's this text. Where's purification in that? 
Now, here's my question. When I try to get inside this and say, okay, what is going on here? We just read Nicodemus, new birth, wind blows where it wills. People come because they want it to be seen that all their deeds have been wrought in God. End of Nicodemus story. Out in the countryside, baptismal conflict. He's like a bridegroom. And you say, what, where did this come from? What? And here's the reason you, you, you ask questions like that. Do you remember what it says over near the end of the gospel about how many things John, the writer of this gospel, could be saying right now that he's not saying? Let me read you verse uh, 25 of chapter 21. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books, which means... John's being really selective. So why this here? That's the way I think about these these selections. Why here? He could have jumped months forward. He could have gone right thing next. But he, he went straight to this countryside, this baptismal thing, this conflict about purification, and these words out of John. I mean, I, don't ex- I didn't expect John to show up again. John has had his say in this gospel. It's been a powerful one. We've heard John already say virtually the same kind of things that are here. Verse 28 of chapter 1, I'm not the Christ. Verse 29, I'm not the, I'm not, uh, the prophet. I'm not the uh, one who is worthy to tie his shoes. So John has already had his say. Why, why here have him say in verse 28, look at verse 28, I'm not the Christ. Verse 29, I'm not the bridegroom. I'm only the friend of the bridegroom. Verse 30, he must increase. I must decrease. We've heard all this before. So why is he brought in here again? And and let me make a stab at what I think is going on. I don't think John merely repeats himself here. I think he is saying some new things and he is revealing some new emotions about those new things. We didn't get the same glimpse into John's heart that we're going to get here, especially in verse 29, about this man's soul and this man's heart. I think John is brought in here, this little story, this little interaction, and these words coming out of his mouth are brought in right here to show this is the way you respond, not like Nicodemus. This, this is the kind of response when you hear sovereignty talk like the wind blows where it wills and so are those who are born of the Spirit and those who do the truth come that it may be seen that their deeds have been wrought in them by God, that sovereignty talk And Nicodemus is just totally flabbergasted, and that's over. And here comes John the Baptist. And I'm going to show you some links with what's gone before. He's not just brought in here, kind of say over again what you said in chapter 1, and then we'll let you go. That's not the case. There are things that he says here and emotions that he reveals here that are Spectacular. Let's read verse 29. The friend, that's John, of the bridegroom, that's Jesus, who stands and hears him 
rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Those are strong words. I've got great joy and I've got complete joy. We didn't hear anything like this coming out of John's mouth before. And what's making him so happy? Everybody's leaving him. The bridegroom's getting all the attention. The cameras are flashing in that direction, not the friends. The rice is all flying over the sidewalk as the couple dashes away. The, the honeymoon is all in that direction and nobody is glancing back on the steps of the church where the voice crying in the wilderness is now silent. John's life is a joyful tragedy. My joy is now complete. In just a few months, a sword will sever his glorious head at the whim of a dancing girl. For John, joy resided precisely in going down while Jesus went up, decreasing while Jesus increased, disappearing while the honeymoon and the rice and the cameras all went that way. And the once glorious voice crying in the wilderness that had gathered such an amazing following, they're all leaving and going to the bridegroom. And he's so happy. He's so happy. That's new. That's for us, for me. Nicodemus didn't respond like this. And many today don't respond to Jesus' summons that he be exalted and we be humble. This is not the basis of the joy of hardly anybody. Just radical Christians to whom something has happened called the new birth, which has so reoriented their joy-producing nerves that they're now rooted in the opposite of what they were once rooted in. Like, give me a gathering. Give me an audience. Give me some praise. Give me some commendation, and I'll be happy. I love approval. And then you get born again. And and you're not the center anymore. He's the center. Tuesday, May 13, last week, this week, 
whenever it was, 10 days ago. Um, NPR, Fresh Air, right? Terry Gross interviewing the author of An American Gospel. Goes to a page in his book and says, uh, I'd like you to comment on something you wrote. Would you read this text? And he reads these words, Matthew 10, 37, 38. He read more, but this is the core of it. You can punch the button and watch this and listen to this for yourself. Start at minute number nine, okay? Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. It's Jesus talking. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And she said, you wrote, who is this egomaniac speaking these words? You want to comment on that? And he said, it sounds egomaniacal to me. So you see, Nicodemus was simply baffled that he would be utterly, totally dependent on the blowing of the wind to cause him to be born again, that his coming to Jesus would be a coming motivated by a desire to make it clearly seen that everything bringing him there had been worked by God. He was just baffled. Not John the Baptist. Not John the Baptist. He's not baffled. He's thrilled. We live in a very, a very increasingly not non-Christian, but anti-Christian culture. Your Jesus is an egomaniac. This is not a misunderstanding of what Jesus said. You must love me more than you love them. You must follow me more than you follow them. You must obey me and nobody else. I am absolute authority. That's egomaniacal. in the world's eyes. So, John the Baptist just strikes me as a very strange fellow. I must go down, he must go up, and in this, my joy is complete. <laughs> Not, I must go down, he must go up, so he is one big-headed monomaniac. Something's wrong with John the Baptist or something's wrong with the world. Clearly, Jesus demands that we treasure him over everything. People who respond that way find John the Baptist's response unintelligible. It's the opposite of their own. 
John the Baptist says, verse 29, end of the verse, just make sure you see it with your own eyes, end of, end of verse 29, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, I must decrease. When Jesus becomes greater in the world and I become lesser in the world, my joy goes up. It's, um, and when this is the purpose of God and the purpose of Jesus, that Jesus go up and God go up and we go down in humility, this is not egomania, this is love. This is called love. So my answer to why John the Baptist is brought in right here is to illustrate a joyful response to the radical things Jesus has been saying to Nicodemus that Nicodemus didn't have a clue how to respond to or didn't under, understand the sovereign work of God in, in salvation. You could call it um, a joyful response to God's sovereign self-exaltation. A joyful response to God's sovereign self-exaltation. So let's get a closer look at how John makes the link. John, the writer of the gospel, makes the link between John's words, the Baptist's words, and what Jesus had just said. Verse 21 uh, from last time. Unlike the man who loves the darkness and hates the light, verses 19 and 20. Unlike the man who hates the darkness and loves the light, the man in verse 21, who's doing the truth, comes to Jesus in order that it might become really public that what he has become is owing to God. It was carried out in God, in God's power, so that the, the mark of the newborn person is the thrill that his newness can be made plain, not coming from himself. That's what drives Christians. Christians are new. They're different. They're forgiven. They're justified. They're being shaped into Christ's likeness. And their thrill is that they not be the center of this. They wanted to be known. Verse 21, that it may be clearly seen. See those words in verse 21? That it may be clearly seen that what has been worked new in them is worked in God, in the power of God, by the hand of God. Now, that's the last thing. That's the last thing. And Jesus is done talking to Nicodemus. And in comes John. Notice... In verse 26, what the disciples say to John, they say, all are going to him. You see those words? All are going to him. Now, what will John's response be? They will be, verse 21, only different words. Verse 27, John answered, a person, namely Jesus, who's receiving all these people, cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. That's the link with verse 21. 
Nobody would be going to Jesus if heaven weren't giving them to Jesus. Sound familiar? The word give sound familiar? Chapter 6, verse 37. Those whom the Father gives to me will come to me. John knows this. He's got a great God who rules over the fickle masses. And if they stream from him to Jesus instead of back to the television set, he knows who's going to get the credit for this. Jesus wouldn't receive anything. Nobody's going to Jesus if it's not given to them from heaven. All that the Father gives to me, Jesus says, will come to me. That's the point of verse 21. That's why John, the writer, has put this in here to continue verse 21's kind of thinking and then see a different response to it than Nicodemus's. You wondering why they're turning away from me and going to Christ, John says? God is doing this. He's giving them to his son. He's giving the son his bride. He doesn't say that yet, but that's the gist. God is choosing the bride. He's giving the bride to the bridegroom. And I want that to be clearly seen. That's why I'm saying what I'm saying. He could have said anything. And he said, no, nobody can receive anything apart from the work of God in heaven, giving Jesus these people. Then verse 28, John tells his disciples this should be no surprise because God sent, key word, God sent him to do this very thing, namely gather people, then lose them. Let's read verse 28. You yourselves, he's talking to his disciples who are querying him about this. You yourselves bear witness that I said I'm not the Christ. I have been sent. By whom? God. I have been sent before him. But now he's here. So my, my following sent to prepare the way of the Lord as I lift up my voice crying in the wilderness is beginning to fade because another voice is here and the bride is turning to her husband. What else would make me happy? Now, I've already used the bride, bridegroom language, but here we see it for the first time in verse 29 and we're surprised. I mean, it comes out of the blue. What, 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 where does this come from? Verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. He just creates this metaphor with all these Old Testament roots, but he creates this metaphor. It's the, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. That's how you know he's the bridegroom. The father gives the bride to him. These are not fickle things going on here. This is design. You can know he's the bridegroom because he has the bride, the friend of the bridegroom. Now John's going to talk about himself. Stands and hears him. That's going to be significant. Hears him. 
and rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. That's going to be significant. Therefore, this joy of of mine is now complete. Why the focus on the voice? The friend stands and hears him and rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Now, maybe it just means, well, you hear his voice, you know he's here, and you're glad that he's here, and so you're really happy. Maybe. I don't think so. Not in this context. And the rest of John, I don't think so. Not spoken by the one who identified himself solely as the voice that's now being silenced and losing all of his following to another voice. The sheep hear my voice and they follow me. The bride hears the husband's Voice, Jesus, that's the one I've been waiting for. Where is that coming from? That's, that's why the voice is so important here. This is John the Baptist's own self-identity vanishing. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, and people come and he baptizes them, and there must have been a thrill, I'm being used of God, getting ready for the king, and then, and then another voice starts to sound. This is the real deal. This is the shepherd. This is the bridegroom. And these people who have been genuinely touched by God coming to John, Hear, hear that voice and they, they may kind of feel like, I, I like you, John, but <laughs> I'm gone. I'm gone. That other voice is what I was made for. That's how you can tell they're sheep. That's how you can tell they're the bride. The bridegroom has the bride. Because God gives the sheep to the shepherd and God gives the bride. To the bridegroom. It's a greater voice that was speaking. Finally, verse 30, last verse to look at. So he's, he's just thrilled. He says, my joy is full, my joy is complete in the turning of my people away and following the other voice. He must increase... And I must decrease. It must be so. I'm underlining the word must. It's a strong, clear necessity. And in this I rejoice that it must be so. This must is very important. It's the must of everything we've seen so far. Look at verse 27. Why are these people? They're, they're people, they're, they're all leaving. They're all going to Jesus. And he says, heaven is giving them to Jesus. It must be. 
Heaven is doing it. This is a divine must. This is God's plan. This is a must that's not determined by earthly necessities. This necessity arose in heaven. God Almighty is intervening in my ministry and taking my following and giving them like a bride to the bridegroom. Or, verse 28, God didn't send me to be the end point. He, he sent me to go before him. And I'm not the Christ, he's the Christ, and therefore I'm sent, and my sending has design, it has purpose. God did my sending, and there's another must. It must be so. God sent me for this. This is God's design. I am gathering to lose, to give, to vanish, to be killed. And then, verse 29, he focuses on the bridegroom's Voice. This is a superior voice. This is the voice. I mean, you do, do the work. You click on your little computer uh, concordance and do this work. Trace this voice out. Phonane. Trace it out and see what it is in this gospel. Chapter 5, verse 25. It raises the dead. The day will come when the dead will hear this voice and they will be raised. Chapter 11, verse 43, Jesus lifted up his voice and said, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man obeyed. This is a necessity. When this bridegroom opens his voice and says, O bride, gather to me, they come. This is necessity. It's the must of verse 30. The one who has the bridegroom is, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. You know it because God has chosen his bride and given her to him. He must increase. It's in divine decrees and plans and purposes that this happened to me and that they go to him. So, contrary to all natural wisdom, contrary to all ordinary human responses, John says, in response to that necessity, which goes back to 3.8 and 3.21, I rejoice greatly. I'm at the end of verse 29. He rejoices greatly, this friend, me, at the bridegroom's voice, this triumphant voice that's taking all my people. He rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, his joy of mine is now, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. So my answer to the question, why is this paragraph here? Of all the hundreds of things John could have chosen to say next after Nicodemus. After 321, after 38, why is this here? My answer is so that John the Baptist could underline the truth of the necessities of 321 and 38, the divine power and the must. My people are leaving because God is giving them to the bridegroom and then show how to respond to that differently from Nicodemus, namely with overflowing Joy. That's why it's here. Leaves one last question.
Whatever happened to purification? Bother you? Bothers me. This thing got started in verse 25 with a purification issue. What's the deal? I mean, that's a throwaway verse if you're not dealing with it. I don't think biblical writers throw anything away. So, is it here? You decide. I'll show you what I see. And you decide. Um, if John had said what he said back in chapter 1, verse 29, Behold, instead of saying bridegroom, this here, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Who takes away the sin of the world. He said that in chapter 1, verse 29. If he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and everybody's going to him. Perfect answer to those folks who are saying, How come they're coming to you? You got a better baptism? You got a better bath? His answer would be, no, we got a lamb of God here. Perfect. He doesn't say it. He doesn't go there. He says, the bridegroom has the bride. It's like, anything, any purification there? Now your wheels are spinning. John, who is writing this, also wrote the book of Revelation. And let me read you one verse from there. Revelation 21, 9. Come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Come, I will show you the bride the wife of the Lamb. I can't prove that John the Baptist was making the link in his mind between chapter 1, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and behold the bridegroom to whom the bride is going, and in his own mind was thinking, um, the bridegroom is the Lamb, and when the bride comes, she experiences the purifying work of a sacrificial lamb and not just a sweet husband. But I'm inclined to think so. I definitely think John, the writer of the gospel, thought so. One other link, now that your wheels are spinning. Can you think of any place in the New Testament where bridegroom and bride are spoken of in terms of purification? Anybody want to holler it out? There it is. Ephesians 5. So let's, let me just read it to you. Ephesians 5.25. Talking to me. Now this, this gets real personal, okay? This winds up to be a text about marriage like every text is. Husbands, this is Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ, the bridegroom, loved the church and gave himself. So the bridegroom is the lamb. The bridegroom is the lamb. 
He loved the church and he gave himself in sacrifice as a lamb for her. That he might sanctify her, having purified her. It's translated cleansed in the uh, ESV, same word. Purified her by the washing of water in the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without any spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In, in the minds of the biblical writers, John, I think already John the Baptist, to know the Messiah, Jesus, as Lamb of God and to know Him as Husband of Israel. And all those he was gathering, to know him in those two ways, came together in a most glorious pattern. When you get married to God, to Christ, the church gets married. They get married to a lamb, or a lion, or a bridegroom, or a shepherd. And every one of them have glorious meanings for this relationship called bridegroom and bride. And, and then we... We husbands, we go to school on that, don't we, guys? We go to school on that. We love like lambs love, not like wolves love. We don't growl at our wives. We don't consume our wives. We die for our wives that we might cleanse them with the Word. We ache for their holiness above all things and don't become puffed up in the pursuit of it, but low down in sacrificial ways. All of that, all that is implicit in this connection. So my answer is, yes, purification is here. I mean, otherwise, it just seems like verse 25 just vanishes. This is, we got an issue here. We're being asked questions about purification. And John starts off, nobody's going to him who's not being given to Jesus by heaven. And you know I didn't come into the world to be the Christ. I came to point them away from myself. And now, this kind of bridegroom, this kind of cleansing, purifying, blemish-removing, sacrificial lamb-like bridegroom has come and my, my followers are streaming to Him, which means He's not an egomaniac. He's a Savior. He's a Lamb. He's a protecting, loving, caring, providing husband. I looked all over the place for this, this author's email address. I don't like to talk about people in public without trying some way to get at them on NPR. So if you know his address, you send it to me, I'll send him the sermon with some pleadings that you don't need to go that direction. His grandfather was a fundamentalist pastor. His father was a pastor who committed suicide and he threw away the faith. I think we could get him back. I hope he listens to this tape. We're not playing games. Sermon illustrations are there for a reason. Let's pray. Father, my, my own personal ache 
is to be like John the Baptist. I love John the Baptist. I love this joyfully tragic life that ends so irrationally, except for the glorious providence of God over all things. So break my pride. Break my love affair with the approval of people. Root my joy in the glorification of Jesus and the diminishment of my life. And do that for us as a church. I want Bethlehem not to be an arrogant church. I want us to be a broken-hearted church. A John the Baptist-like church. He must increase. We, Bethlehem, must decrease. And in this, our joy will be full. Oh God, that's a good evidence of being born again. To have such upside-down values as that. So work that in Bethlehem. And if there's any here who are not yet united to this Christ so that they can enjoy the lamb-like forgiveness that he gives and the husband-like care that he bestows, would you draw them to faith? I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.